0: You're listening to an all-new episode of Self-Made Strategies. Visit SelfMadeStrategies.com for new episodes, information about our guests, and a whole lot more. Welcome to another episode of the Self-Made Strategies podcast. I am your host, Tony Lopes, and our next guest is the founder of Onfolio, and an authority on buying, selling, and growing online businesses. He's also known for bootstrapping human-proof designs and scaling it to a seven-figure revenue and then exiting early last year. In fact, during 2019, he bought 20-plus websites valued from roughly $30,000 to $500,000 each. He is here with us to talk about investing in online businesses, specifically content and affiliate-based sites rather than the traditional e-commerce sites, and getting above-market average returns, also scaling remote teams, and also content marketing for SEO. Here for your listening pleasure are the self-made strategies of Dominic Wells. Hey, Dominic, how are you? Hey, thanks for having me. I'm good, yeah, happy to be here. Yeah, thanks for joining the show. Really excited to get to know you, to hear more about Onfolio and human-proof designs, of course, and hear a lot about your entrepreneurial background, Pick your brain a little bit, and then uh, and then talk about the differences between um, content-based and affiliate-based sites versus traditional e-commerce stuff. Yeah, sounds good. Tell us how you got started in investing in online businesses.
1: Yeah, um, so I actually got started just building online businesses instead. I think probably that's how most people do it. Um, in 2012, I was just learning how to make money online, and uh, affiliate websites were one of the things I learned about. Um, and so I just started and I tried. And um like most people, I built a bunch of websites that made no money or they made a tiny bit of money. Um, but eventually I was able to build ones that were making okay money. Um, and that led me to start human-proof designs in 2014. Yeah. Well it was very late 2013, early 2014 where essentially I had discovered, um, a marketplace known as Flipper, which is a bit like, um, I guess it's a bit like eBay for buying and selling websites. Um, and on Flipper, I'd noticed that there were a lot of people who were just selling these kind of garbage turnkey, like starter websites that would, um, Well, the premise was you buy this website and then you don't do anything and it will make you money on autopilot. And anyone who actually knew how websites made money kind of knew that it was BS, but people were buying them because they, they didn't want to start a site themselves. They wanted to buy something turnkey. And so I realized, well, if I actually build legitimate turnkey starter websites and then teach people how to use them that could be an interesting opportunity Mm -hmm. um and so that's what i did with human proof designs and um over the years we scaled that up and as you mentioned in the intro it was doing seven figure revenue um a year from i think 2017 i think was the first year we did over a
0: million that's pretty good in three years
1: yeah yeah, I mean it's not slow. <laughs> but like you know, because it's yeah, like, come right. on, hurry up. But um looking back in hindsight, yeah, it was actually pretty fast. Um and anyway, at some point I realized I had an excess cash flow and so I was building sites from scratch um with my team. And then I thought, well, why don't I just buy established sites? Um and then at some point members of my audience told me they were interested in buying established sites. There were people who thought, well, I could buy a a beginner starter site like you sell, or I could buy something off a marketplace like Empire Flippers. Um, But basically, I had no idea. They had no idea um, what was a good site to buy, how to run it afterwards. They didn't want to get scammed and lose all their money and all these things. And so I realized there was another opportunity for me to help people buy better sites and bigger sites um, so after some deliberation i launched it under a separate brand which is on folio um, and that was partly because i was considering selling human proof designs and so i thought well i'll just make sure that they're separate but also i, I felt like it, it needed completely different marketing completely different language um, and if if someone visited if, like, an investor visited Human Proof Designs, they might think, "Well, this is too complicated." They're talking about affiliate marketing, and um, so I, yeah, I just thought it made sense to have them as separate brands. Um, so, I started that in twenty, late twenty eighteen, um, and basically, yeah, early twenty nineteen, left Human Proof Designs and spent twenty nineteen. And so far, half of 2020, um, growing
0: on it. Now, going back to what you were saying about how you started out with sort of tiny affiliate sites and you were kind of banging around and not really getting it to blow up. What was the difference maker? What was the X factor that took you from, you know, these tinier affiliate websites to the big boom, the big affiliate website that finally got you to take off?
1: Um, there was, was a lot of trial and error. So the first few affiliate sites I built, I didn't understand niche selection very well. I wasn't good at keyword research. Um, and then you build a site and then, I don't know, a few months later you realize, oh, I built this wrong. Like maybe you read a blog post someone does about how to do keyword research or maybe you just see the results of your previous efforts. And, and so you you learn from that. Um, what else happened? Yeah, I felt like when you picked a niche, you had to pick like one product and just sort of argue for it and say everything else was was bad. So for example, one of my first successful websites was about razors. Um and I had identified straight razors or cutthroat razors as like an opportunity. Um and so I was just reviewing cutthroat razors and I was saying to people, you shouldn't use like a normal store-bought razor or you shouldn't use a safety razor because they're not as good as a cutthroat. And yeah, I was just kind of going all in on these cutthroat razors. And so the site didn't have a lot of opportunity for traffic. And I was kind of making an argument that wasn't really real. Um, And then, I don't know, later on, I just kind of shifted my mindset. And I said, well, wait. Some people want safety razors, some people want electric razors. Why don't I just review all of them and say, here are the benefits of a cutthroat razor. You might want one if ABC reason, here's the one you should buy if you're interested. Or if you prefer a straight uh, safety razor, we recommend this one. And so I changed the website from being like kind of like a, a bad sales pitch into being an informational resource. And when that happened, I just started to make a lot more money because um, I got more traffic and buyers were like, they weren't sort of disagreeing with what I was saying. They were like, oh yeah, thanks. Thanks for the info. That makes sense. And then, I mean, I don't know what they were saying, but that was <laughs> how I imagined them. Um, and yeah, and then that was, I just started making a lot more money. It went from, I don't know, uh, $50 a month to five hundred dollars a month to two thousand dollars a month within um four or five months once i had sort of shifted my strategy and um uh yeah it just started kicking off and so that when i built sites in the future i was always looking for a site where i could just be this kind of a a topic where i could be like this information provider and uh, that's pretty much how most sites are built these days not just by me but by everyone but in um In 2013, it wasn't really obvious that that was the way to go. You
0: really have to add value to your client base, to your uh, target audience, the people that are coming to your site. And then hopefully if you're adding enough value, they'll click on your links, click through to say Amazon, for example, if they buy a product that you've recommended via your site, you'll get an affiliate marketing piece of that, right? That's basically how that's generating money on a 30,000 foot view.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, and another shift I made on that website was, so Amazon is infamous for not offering very high commissions. Um, so actually they were a lot higher back then. I think it was something like 8% if I referred a sale of a razor and a lot of the razors were like 50 bucks. So 8% is like what, four, $4 I think. Um, and whereas there were other private razor companies that had their own private affiliate programs that offered 70% commission. So I was promoting them instead. Um and no one was buying anything because it was just like some random razor company. You didn't know what the quality was going to be or anything. So when I just said, well, you know what, I'm just going to refer everyone to Amazon. Um again I made a lot more money because with Amazon you don't really have to do any selling. You just say, "Hey, this this razor is pretty good. Go check it out on Amazon." And once the person saw Amazon, they're going to do the right, work. Right. Um, but also, Amazon pays you for everything that person buys, not just the product you recommend. Um, So anything they buy within like a 24-hour period. Um, so I found people were going there, buying a razor, buying a brush, buying a razor stand, buying uh, like a. Uh, extra razor blades and buying shaving cream. And, and then like, if it was Christmas time, they were also buying everything else for all their family. And so those commissions add up to a lot more than, um, uh, the, the $20 commission I was trying to get from referring a higher end, like razor. Um, so yeah, basically, yeah, that's the concept. You refer a sale and the vendor gives you a commission, um, And Amazon's probably the most well-known. Right. And
0: when they're going to Amazon, you have the review system built in. There's a lot of advertising and sponsored links anyway. So you really, that's almost the hands-off approach. And like you said, they're doing the heavy lifting. So you don't really have to worry about that so much. Yeah, exactly. Um, Very interesting. So how did you get this idea to begin with? How did this sort of affiliate marketing concept strike you from the beginning? Did it Was it just something that you were always interested in? Were you more of a tech person that, you know, tinkered around with websites and stuff to begin with? Did you code it yourself or did you? Because you we're going back quite a while to before these uh, out of the box website makers like Wix and Squarespace and stuff were around, right? So you you probably had to do some of the coding and the heavy lifting yourself to begin with.
1: Uh, okay, there's like nine (laughs) questions there. (laughs) Sorry, unpack them. Um, so no, they're all good questions. Um, I'm just trying to remember them all. So, the first one was like, How did I get into affiliate marketing? So, uh, two kind of ways I had heard of it because I a lot of online entrepreneurs read uh Tim Ferriss four hour work week. Um, so I read that, and but he actually in that particular edition, I think he may have re-released the book a couple of times since then. But in that particular edition, he doesn't really recommend affiliate marketing as a business model. He's he recommends other business models and says, "Oh, but you can also have affiliate sales to like uh, boost your income." And so I'd heard of affiliate marketing, but I wasn't like seeking it out. Um, and then what what ended up happening was reading that book made me kind of curious about online business um and at the time there was a scam going around and um i didn't get scammed <laughs> luckily but there was a scam going around where uh it was this fake um it was like a fake page and it was like oh if you sign up for this package uh, you can get this job where you just post links in google and that's kind of ambiguous what do you mean post links in google but it's like a fake news article and it's like, yeah, people are signing up and they're posting links in Google and they're making money. And then there's a bunch of fake comments saying like, yeah, I thought it was a scam, but I bought it and I'm making money. And I remember thinking, how do they get a, Like, this is clearly a scam. How do they get away with this? I didn't realize that, uh, you could advertise scams <laughs> on the internet. I was like, how did the internet police <laughs> let this happen? Um, and so I Googled it and I found someone who had reviewed it and said, yeah, it's a scam. Um, but if you want to learn how to really make money online, I'll, I'll teach you. And he, that was, so that was his, like his marketing uh, method. He, he, so his website was, and still is, I've tried that dot com. And he basically tries scams so that wow. we don't have to, and he tells us if they're legit or if they're scams. Um, and then, so he, he loses <laughs> money for us basically. And then. He referred me to a place called WealthyAffiliate.com, which, um, is like a training center for affiliate marketing. And so I signed up, he got a commission from me signing up. So that was his thing. But I signed up and I learned everything about affiliate marketing there. And, and um, um, yeah, that's kind of how it went. So I wasn't really seeking out affiliate marketing, but his emails were really good. And they explained the concept and I was like, Oh, sounds easy. I'll be a millionaire tomorrow. Um, and not that he oversold it. That's just like, I'm just a stupid optimist. Um, And yeah. So then going back to building the site, there weren't things like Wix or Squarespace back then, but WordPress Mm -hmm. has been around for years and WordPress. I still build everything on WordPress. Um, And so for those who don't know, WordPress is um, it's called a content management system. And it's, it's not as easy as like the drag and drop builders like Wix. Um, It's actually probably more powerful though and essentially you do, you get a dashboard and you can add plugins, which are kind of like apps on a, on a smartphone. And, um, when you write an article, you click like add new post and then you write, just like you're writing an email and there's a, there's like a, you know, oh I want to add a link. So I click the URL button and add in a link. So you still don't have the code. I, I barely know. I can read some code, but I barely know how to actually do any coding, uh, even, even today. So, um that was a massive like if i had to code the website myself i wouldn't have done it um because i i just i don't (laughs) know how (laughs) but i wasn't interested in learning um yeah so that's kind of how it no but that's very helpful
0: i think even for our audience for those who are listening and thinking well maybe i can't do that because i don't have coding skills that's really refreshing to hear right that someone who has virtually no coding skills, I hope I'm not being offensive, um, can uh, can build this just using WordPress. And to your to your point, we use WordPress for our podcasting website for a lot of reasons, but largely because it's also open source, right? People contribute, like you said, plugins, which are basically apps or ways to amplify your site with different uh, things that run in the background. And we use Powerp- PowerPress through Blueberry to host our podcast on it. And it makes it really simple and straightforward. You're right. So tell us a little bit about, sorry, go ahead um, and continue.
1: Yeah. I I was just trying to say, it's not offensive. That's all (laughs) that I can't code. I think it's actually something I'm proud of that I'm able to build a sort of online Mini empire without yeah exactly. How to code. Um, so you're, you're exactly completely now. How
0: about the element of being creative and adding value through your blog posts to attract people? I guess we can talk a little bit about content marketing and SEO here. How did you up your skill set to make sure that you were not only adding value to your target audience but being engaging enough to get them to want to come to your website for information? And then not only that, but to click through your site to go on and buy stuff from Amazon, for example. We're just going to keep picking on Amazon because I think that's the most well-known version. But how did you do that? How did you build that skill set? Yeah. Um,
1: primarily through practice. I just wrote a lot of articles. Um, I had I had free time. I, so I think I wrote three articles wow. a day or something like that. Um, and my, my first articles were bad. Um, I found one of my old articles recently and I read it and it was very cringeworthy. Um, I think everybody starts out writing, thinking they're writing like a a paper for university. Um, because that's like the last important writing any of us ever did. Uh, well most of us, um, whereas really you should write an article, like a blog post, like, um, you're writing a Facebook post or an email to your friends. Um, um, just like conversational basically. Um, so I was writing, yeah, very formal, very stiff. Um, again, trying to, trying to sell, even though I was terrible at selling. Um, and so I just, I got better because I would critique my work, I guess. And I would, I read so many other websites, um, both other people talking about how to write good content, but also I would read good content and think why is this Mm -hmm. good content? And so it was just like uh immersion and practice really. Um and now writing good content, even though that's what Google says you need to do, it's not necessarily going to be what gets you like ranking at the top of Google because there's you know there's a million factors. Um so writing good content is important because when you do get traffic to your website, yeah, those visitors are going to click through if you say buy this thing or I recommend this thing, it's the best for you, what your problem is, they're more likely to believe you if right. it's a good article. Um, but then to actually get ranking in the first place, you need to do SEO. And uh, one one element of SEO is having good content, but there's like, well, there's over 200 different ranking factors. And so that's a that was a whole different skill set I needed to learn. Um, SEO was simpler in 2013. Um, the fundamentals haven't changed for years, but uh, a lot of the strategies and tactics were, were easier back then. So
0: what are your sort of top tips or your best practices now for SEO? I mean, one of the things that's interesting but a little frustrating at the same time is now almost everyone, and I hope, again, I'm not being offensive to you, but there's almost everyone is shouting from the rooftops, I know SEO, I know content marketing, hire me, you know, we'll help you and in all reality the 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 proof is in the pudding at the end of the day a lot of the times you go and you look behind the scenes or you see somebody's following on social media for example or something along those lines and they're touting themselves as an seo or content marketing specialist but don't have a very big following so it makes you wonder if they're really uh practicing what they preach right so but you obviously have been in this arena for a long time and you've built affiliate websites from scratch from 2013 on. So you've, uh, you've trudged through the mud, so to speak of content marketing and SEO. So what today in 2020, what are the top best practices that you need to see in a website to really start to rank at the top of the, uh, search engine results pages?
1: Yeah, good question. Um, I think with any, any expert, anything where there are experts, the the people who are really experts will just say it depends, or they'll say they're not experts. And the ones who don't have many social media followers are the ones who will say, Yeah, I'm an expert. Um, so that's very true in SEO. Um, and it does depend a little bit, but really, yeah, the fundamentals that you need, and Google will say this too, are you need good content, you need backlinks right. from other websites, and you need, um, good user engagement metrics. Um, so what that really means is good content means not just something that readers want, but also something that Google can understand. So there's kind of like on page SEO, which is like optimizing your articles so that Google knows what it's about. So if you want to rank number one in Google for like, Uh, best straight razor, you need to have that word somewhere on your page. Now, back in the day, you would just write best straight razor on your page a hundred times, and then you would rank. And people who maybe remember using search engines in the late 90s um, or the early 2000s, um, whether that was very early Google or like Yahoo and stuff before that, you would search for stuff and the, the, the articles you found were, just like stuffed with those keywords and there was nothing else really there um so it's it's become a lot more sophisticated since then uh but it still comes down to google is a a machine and an algorithm and it needs to understand what your article is about so it does that through the words on the page Um, but then you also need to make google realize your article is better than the million other ones on the same topic and backlinks are the fundamental way that happens and so basically a backlink is a link from another website to yours and google treats it as a vote Um, and again back in the day it was a pure quantity thing so whoever had the most links would win and people would just go out and uh span the internet with blog comments and they would add their website to social bookmarking like things like dig.com and um, and google's got a lot better now and it weights different links differently. So if I wanted to rank for best straight razor and I had a backlink from, um, say Buzzfeed or Huffington post or even better, like GQ or men's health, because then they're, they're very authoritative websites and they're relevant to shaving that backlink is going to be worth, uh, a lot more than just like a spammy backlink that's not relevant. Um, and so the, the third thing you need is good user metrics. So if people are visiting your site and they're just leaving straight away, uh, then Google will take note of that. They're able to track that. And they'll just be like, maybe this website is not very good because the users are just like leaving immediately. Uh, they're, not clicking, they're not clicking around and visiting multiple pages. Um, so those are the three fundamentals. Um, so for the average person who maybe doesn't want to learn SEO, I would just say, just focus on good content. Um, and try to learn as much as you can about SEO in like, you know, what, what time you have, um, because then even if you do choose an expert to help you, um, at least you can understand a bit more about who's blowing hot air and who is like actually good at SEO.
0: Right. That's great advice. I mean, theoretically, all of those factors really do point to good content, as you said, as the core value, right? You're looking at user metrics, whether or not they're staying on their page. And if they're leaving, Google is taking that as an indicator. Yeah, they're popping into this site and they're not finding what they're looking for. And that's why they're leaving. And then a lot of those other factors, like the black hat stuff from old school internet uh, affiliate marketing, where you would just stuff backlinks onto random pages or even pay for backlink services that would just literally list websites all of those things are now considered black hack and it can actually hurt your seo rankings
1: yeah um yeah at best if you do the black hat stuff you might rank for a short period of time until google google has many many algorithms it's not just one algorithm and I don't know how many, but several of their algorithms are basically just designed to find people just doing black black hat practices. So um, you might rank for a short time, and then they'll catch you and just penalise your site. Um, or they, if they're not sure if you've done it or if like a competitor's done it to kind of discredit you, then the best case scenario there would be they'll just they'll just uh, devalue all of the links. So they'll be like, well, we don't know. Whether he did it himself and should be punished, or whether a competitor did it, so we'll just say the links aren't worth anything, and then the site loses rankings anyway. Um, uh, yeah, um, so it's better to so just not worry about black hat SEO unless you like really want to, like, you have that mentality that you want to try and game Google and be a be like a hacker type person. Um, otherwise. It's, uh, it's, it's, just, it's an uphill struggle.
0: Now, what would you say is the hardest part about developing SEO for a business today? We talked a little bit about the strategies behind it. We talked a little bit about avoiding people who fancy themselves experts, but aren't really experts uh, when the rubber meets the pavement, so to speak. So what would you say, though, if somebody is trying to work on their SEO, they're trying to improve their website, and whether that it's for services that they're actually selling through their business or for affiliate services, what would you say the hardest part of developing SEO today is?
1: Um, I would say it's the feedback loop. Um, well it's kind of a combat. It's kind of like a trifactor thing. It's the feedback loop trying to calculate the ROI and uh, I think SEO is a lot more crowded now. So before you might be one of the only people on page one who's actually doing SEO, whereas now everyone on page one is doing SEO. So by you know page one, I mean, when you Google something, the first page of results. So you need to just rather than you need to be the, the best at SEO or the only one doing SEO, you just need to be the one who kind of does the most SEO. Um, and that can be hard because the feedback loop is, let's say, um, you do a marketing campaign for your, your website and you generate mm-hmm. some backlinks and their they're quality. Um, you might get 10 links and your website doesn't move and you think, what? And then three months later, suddenly you move and you're on the top of page two or the bottom of page one. And so then you do another campaign, you generate some more links and the website doesn't really move. And so you have to wait a long time to find out if your efforts are actually working. And I think the biggest problem a lot of people have with SEO is they don't have a big enough budget. So whether they're hiring someone to do SEO for them or they're paying an agency to do SEO, um, people either don't have enough budget or they want to know the ROI. And the thing with SEO is it's like, um, I thought of a good way of describing it the other day. I haven't used it yet, so I don't know if it's a good way, but I'll try. Um, Imagine you've got like a hot glass and you want to cool it down. If you put four ice cubes in it, those ice cubes are just going to melt and they're not going to make a difference. But if you pour in enough ice cubes, it's going to work and the glass is going to cool down. So SEO is kind of like that. Like You could build 99 links and your website is stuck on the bottom of page one. And you just waste 99 links. Um, and you think, wow, I've spent all that money and I've spent all that time and effort and I've got no, nothing to show for it. Whereas if you just built maybe 105 links, that could be enough to get you right to the top of page one. And now you're, you're generating, um, a huge ROI and, uh, you're getting all the traffic and all the sales and everything that you want. And so a lot of people run into issues where maybe they're, you know, they're, they've done a lot of SEO and they've got nothing to show for it. Um, but if you can just push through to doing enough SEO, then suddenly the ROI is ridiculous. Um, and again, like the hard part is knowing, well, how many ice cubes, you know, do I need to put in this glass Uh, or how many, um, how many links do I need to build or how much other SEO do I need to do? Um, and, it causes most people to just kind of waste their money because they give up before they actually get to where they want to get to.
0: I actually think the glass example is a great one with the ice cubes, by the way. The uh, four ice cubes melting rather quickly, I think, is a good point. If you're only dabbling in it and only trying it out for a few weeks or a few pages, you're really not going to see any difference, right? And then you really do need to take the time. This is something that takes a lot of time and a lot of hard work there's no get-rich-quick way to do it. There's no quick fix to get you to the top of the Google rankings, right? So how long would you say on average today if you were entering a new market or if you haven't done any SEO and you had to start working on your site from scratch, how long do you think it would take you to to start seeing some meaningful ranking?
1: Uh, this is where I'm going to say it depends. Um, but yeah. Um It really does. It depends on how competitive the, the keywords are that you're trying to rank for. It depends on, um, how actively your competitors are doing SEO as well, because to, to beat them, you don't just have to have more links than them, but you have to, like they might have a hundred links when you start, but then when you get to a hundred links, they've got 200 because they're still building as well. Um, but I would say you should really think long-term. Like if it's a meaningful keyword that you actually want to rank for, like that other people want to rank for too, and it's going to get traffic, I'd say at least nine to 12 months to actually start to see some inroads. Um, now, you might get some some leading indicators and some positive signals before that. Like you see, oh, my website is moving in the right direction. I've started to rank for some keywords. I've started to rank number one for some very low traffic keywords that no one else is paying attention to. Um, so you can see, yeah, this is working, but it's going to take you, I mean, I think it's probably easier to just say expect at least a year. Um, now if you're trying to rank for CBD keywords or something like that, where everyone CBD is a lot more competitive because CBD, uh, businesses aren't, Allowed to advertise, like paid advertise. So SEO is the only play they can make. And so they have to spend a lot of money on SEO. Um, so if you're trying to enter that one, it's going to take you maybe a year of spending 10 grand a month. Um, whereas if you're trying to rank for, um, I don't know, something less popular, like some type of DIY craft or something, um, maybe it's less competitive because the people you're competing with are bloggers or Hobbyists that aren't as sophisticated, maybe you could outrank them in four to six months. So, yeah, I mean, it it depends. I'm just going to.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. So, how about giving us an example of developing a strong SEO presence for a razor company, which you have experience with? So, let's say today you were going to start a website about um, cutthroat razors, as you said and you were going to start a brand new website. You have no SEO presence. What's your process from day one? How are you developing it and making sure that it's going to be successful and have longevity?
1: Um, I would probably not, it's tough because I probably wouldn't start a Razor one because I think it's more competitive now, but um, let's say, let's say I was going to do that anyway. Um, I mean, I would still do it the same way. I, it would just take me longer. So I would still, I would create content reviewing all the different types of razors. I would do content about um, war, how to use a razor. I mean, it, it's obvious, but there's cutthroat razors. You need to know how to do it. I would I would do a lot more video content. Um, so I would use YouTube to get viewers and then I would send those viewers to my website. I would probably not focus on razors. Actually, I'd probably go broader. and. Um, do something to do with like grooming or uh, men's fashion because then it's easier to build a kind of fan base and community um and get email subscribers so that i can basically rely less on ranking number one in google um and i can put um put more offers out to the email subscribers and so i would probably use like a multi-channel approach to getting traffic um Now, I would still try to rank number one for things like Best Straight Razor, um, but I wouldn't make it my entire strategy. And it would be something that I was like, well, I'll do that later once I've got all the fans and the audience around uh, that, that I can get from other platforms,
0: if that makes sense. Yeah, that does make a lot of sense. I mean, what you're thinking about and what you're talking about are the things that those individuals might be looking for, right? You're building a community by hitting the tangential pieces of information and details that they might be looking for is what I'm gathering. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. So it's like just taking a step back and thinking, well, who are the people Googling these terms and what, what else are they interested in and what content would, would, can I put out that will make them gravitate towards me? rather than just some dude who reviews razors.
0: <laughs> some dude who reviews razors. That's pretty great. Uh, <laughs> that's what I used to be. <laughs> well, look at you now. Um, so how about an example of a company <laughs> that you've worked with or one of your own pages that maybe just really was not doing well from an SEO perspective, and how did you sort of pick them up by the bootstraps and get them in the right direction? Uh,
1: yeah, I mean last year there were a couple of sites where we bought them and shortly after we bought them there was a google update and they didn't perform very well and so they started to lose traffic which is a lot scarier when you just bought a website because now the website's making a lot less money than it should be um and so we just did an audit of the site we looked at things like the speed of the website we looked at a lot of other technical elements to see if um there was anything that could be improved there. We looked at the backlink profile, like had they built some maybe spammy backlinks. Um, and so we cleaned up any any backlinks. So you can say to Google, oh, uh, I don't want these backlinks like associated with my site. Um, so we did that and we focused on building higher quality backlinks. Um, and we we kind of just gave the site like a little bit of a a renovation, I guess. Nothing too drastic, but We just, yeah, we, we did an audit and we cleaned it up and we looked to see, are there any broken links, like where we're linking to something which is broken and Google will think oh, that's low quality site. If they haven't, they've got too many broken links. Um, and then I don't know, over the course of the next four or five months, we didn't really see many results, but then there was another Google update, uh, four months later and then the traffic started picking up again. Um, and sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't work, um. So it's kind of an ongoing battle, really, to to keep um, keeping Google's good graces. Yeah,
0: you mentioned some, obviously, these are investments for you. So when you're buying a website, you're expecting it to continue to produce its monthly revenue on a recurring basis. Otherwise, you're not getting your ROI on your investment, of course. So tell us about a time when one of those investments didn't go so well and what you wish you would have known when you invested in that site in particular
1: yeah um I actually have a case study on my site about this, but um there was one site I bought that got a lot of traffic from Pinterest. Um, so I was kind of excited about that because I was like, yeah, not an SEO site. finally, I can I don't have to fear Google. Um, and it turns out Pinterest is even more fickle than Google. Um, and shortly after I bought the site, Pinterest ban- uh, yeah, Pinterest banned the the website's Pinterest account because they thought it was spamming. And we weren't spamming, it's just so many people spam on Pinterest that they have really aggressive like uh, spam blockers. And so what you do is you say, I wasn't spamming, and then they say, oh, okay, we've looked into it, yeah, you're not spamming, and then they unban it. Um, but it never really fully recovered to its traffic levels after the ban. So it still got traffic, it was still making money, but it was making, instead of like three or four grand a month, it was making like one, one or two. Um, and so that was just like something where if I'd known in hindsight, I wouldn't have bought a site that was like 95% Pinterest traffic because it's, it can go to zero just as quickly. Um, and you know, there's no guarantee that Pinterest will unban you. They might, cause it's, it's a judgment call. So there might be some account rep who's like, actually, I think you were spamming, um, uh, because it's hard to not be spamming on Pinterest, because the way you get traffic is by basically pinning a lot. So you you essentially are spamming. Um, and so, what else? Um, yeah, I mean that's the main one I, I use. Um, but there's been there's been lots where we've bought them and then the the traffic has not played out because maybe a, a lot of the time as well a seller will sort of down tools while they're selling their website. And so they won't add any new articles. They won't fix anything that breaks. And so you take over this site and maybe it's been neglected for like two or three months. And so you have to then quickly ramp up the efforts again. Um, So now I try to only buy sites where the seller's like still actively working on it. Um, Because otherwise, yeah, you can take over a site and then it just slowly trends downhill for the next six months and you're thinking, why did I buy this one? I should have bought a different one. Um, and so, yeah, it can be, it can be frustrating.
0: Right. So what is your process behind investing in these online businesses and websites? How are you conducting your valuation? What growth indicators are you looking for? You know, what are the metrics that you're going through in your mind when you're looking at a website as a potential investment?
1: Yeah. Um, so starting with valuation, um, there's kind of like market averages already. So, The one that is probably the most accurate right now is around three years average. uh, Three years average profit is what you pay. So if a site is doing say 10k a month, so it's going to be doing 120 a year, uh, and this is profit, um, then you would probably pay 360 to 400 thousand for that site, um, which should be a great deal because that means if you don't grow it you spent 400K and you're going to make 120 a year, that's like um, 37% ROI or something like that. Um, So the first thing you look at is, well, are they asking for like a fair multiple? And if they're asking for less, is that because there's something wrong with the site and I need to avoid it? Or is it just the seller is motivated or they're unsophisticated? They don't know, you know, they've undervalued their site um and then if they've overvalued it is there a legitimate reason because valuations are very relative and so i'll pay higher if the website's better and so yeah if someone says well i want four years multiple then the website needs to be really good but i'm not against paying it um so yeah I'm, i'm just looking at the site and thinking is it worth what they're asking and then if it is well or, or what I'm doing to determine that is I'm looking at how diversified it is. Um, so is its traffic going to lots of different articles on the site? And is its traffic coming from different sources? Whereas if it's like they've just got one article that ranks number one in Google and it gets all the traffic, you know, that's a huge red flag because what happens if that one article loses its ranking? The site's income drops like significantly. Um, this is less of an issue with bigger sites because kind of by definition, bigger sites have more diversification. Um, and then you're looking at other risks, like is it just promoting one product that if that product goes offline or goes out of business or something, um, then the site's not going to make any money? Is it is it relying on uh, uh, the graces of Amazon's affiliate program too much or Google's? Google ads or Facebook or something like that. Um, and then there's a lot of other due diligence things you do, but really the 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 way you evaluate is this a good opportunity is, yeah, is it well diversified and there's less risk? And then you might think, well, what opportunities are there to grow it? So is it trending up? Um, I'm looking at a site right now that um, is growing maybe – Maybe uh, last month it did 8K profit. This month it's on course for 10. The month, like two months ago, it did six. And before that, it did five. So it's growing up. And and it's all because Google's starting to like the site more and give it more rankings. Um, But that site, if it's making 10K a month now, the average is going to be, say, based on 6K a month. So you're getting a site that's trending up and you're paying for what it was doing earlier, not what it's doing now. So that's a great deal. Uh, So then you have to ask yourself, is it still going to trend up and what will it be worth if it doesn't? And um, uh, what other opportunities are there? Like, has he already written every article related to the niche or has he only covered the topic in small amounts and I can now expand the site and grow it even more? Um, Is it in a lucrative niche? Is it in a declining niche? What's the competitive landscape like? You know, all of these different things. Just like if you were buying... Buying any any business, really. Um, yeah, a lot of people call websites online real estate, and I can see why they say that. But it's it's very different from real estate because it's not it's not as passive as real estate. You're not just collecting rent every month. Uh, So it's it's a lot more like buying a brick and mortar business.
0: That's very interesting. And yeah, I think most people don't realize that there's a lot of upkeep and a lot of continual work that needs to go into these websites to keep them churning, to keep them at the top of the search engine results pages that they're on, to keep that traffic coming and keep the revenue going. It's very interesting. Uh, So your team at Onfolio, this is now your new organization where you're helping others to buy and sell and grow online businesses, correct? So you have a team that's fully remote, you're based in Thailand, correct? Taiwan, uh, I'm Taiwan. sorry. So you're based in Taiwan and we're 12 hours apart right now. It's the evening on Friday, Saturday morning in Taiwan where you are. And uh so most of your team is remote, is that correct?
1: Yeah, 100%, very cool. Yeah. And not just remote, but scattered across yeah, the globe as awesome. well.
0: So how long have you been working with remote teams? Has it been the entirety of Onfolio? Was it before that when you were with the Human Proof Designs organization? How long have you been working with a fully remote team?
1: Yeah, I've I've always been fully remote. Like sometimes I've had team members pass through Taipei, um, the city I'm in, and maybe they'll stay a couple of weeks and we'll work together. But then the rest of the time they'll you know they'll move on. Um, Yeah, it's always been remote because I was always in Taiwan and um, I didn't really want to hire locals. um, And so I just hired online. Um, And it's a business where you can hire online, so it's a lot easier uh, and you can generally get people cheaper than if you had to have an office and so on. Um, So we're not exactly part of a shift from offices to remote work because we've always been set up this way.
0: That's really really cool. So, how first of all, how do you even go about the process of finding these individuals for your team and vetting them to make sure that they're good enough to be a part of your organization?
1: Um, yeah, there's different ways. Um, for example, there's, there's there's a lot of job boards like uh, Upwork.com, um, DynamiteJobs.com, um, TopTal. And then there's like kind of geographic specific ones, like there's the onlinejobs.ph if you want to hire Filipinos or uh, jobrack.eu if you want to hire Eastern Europeans. And generally in the space, it's known that, for example, if you want to hire a Filipino, you can get a really good price because they don't need like 30 bucks an hour like an American would. Um, and Filipinos have good English. Uh, now, you're probably not going to hire a Filipino as a writer because their English is good, but it's not like native speaker writing level but you could hire them as a WordPress developer or um, as a virtual assistant or something like that. And the same with Eastern Europe. Um, generally, people like to hire uh, Serbians or Macedonians. And I'm trying not to generalize here, but it's hard not right. to. But generally, those, those regions are known for having very talented coders and um, their English is good. They have a Western work ethic, um, but they don't need as much money as a Westerner does. And so um, it's not like you're trying to be cheap or anything. It's just they might be happy with 1500 euros a month full time. Um, and a lot of them are sort of hungry for online work as well. So it, it, it um, yeah. Now, in terms of how you evaluate if they're good, that I mean, you need to know really what you shouldn't go out and hire for a position that you're not familiar with yourself first. So, yeah now if i needed to hire a facebook ad guru and i wasn't very good at facebook ads because i've worked with agencies and stuff i I kind of know how to evaluate them but when i first started i wouldn't know so i would the first things i hired for were like a wordpress developer uh someone to help me when occasionally wordpress does need some coding um and I would hire writers and I would hire virtual assistants to just do the small odd jobs that I didn't want to do anymore. So it was all stuff that I knew how to do. So it's a lot easier then to evaluate if the other person's doing a good job. Um, So what worked for me was really trying to wear all the hats first and then over time, taking those hats off and putting them on other people's heads. Um, I don't know if that's the best way to do it. Maybe some other people should just hire first rather than learning the skill for themselves, but, I can't really attest to that. I would
0: agree with you, though. I think when you know, not necessarily at an expert level, because you can get stuck as an entrepreneur doing all of the things that should be done by others, like you said, maybe you don't need to be answering every single email or phone call that's coming into your business, right? Which is part of Tim Ferriss's four-hour work week as well. He mentions that in the book, right? Outsourcing is one of the keys to growth. And whether that's internal outsourcing meaning hiring other employees to come in and work internally within the organization regardless of whether they're physical or remote although post covid-19 we're very likely to see a huge uptick in remote work even locally but you you do need to outsource those things because you can get stuck but i agree with you at the same time that having enough knowledge that you can communicate that you can oversee without being fully microman, you know, fully going into the micromanaging mode of overseeing, allowing them to do their work and to be an expert in their space, but knowing enough about it where you can monitor it and make decisions about it, probably makes you a more effective leader of a remote team, right? Yeah, yeah, I would
1: agree with now, that. Now, I think that's
0: yeah. What would you yeah. say are some of the common myths behind scaling a, a successful remote team? And how have you overcome those myths?
1: Um, what are the myths? Uh, I think a lot of, I don't know if it's a myth as such, but a lot of thing, a lot of um, people who do scale remote teams, they maybe don't think remote workers are as good as they are. And it's hard for them to let go and really like, let remote people do the work. Um, And I think it comes down to empowering them as well. Um, So it's like, I'll tell you, so people tend to delegate rather than like, um, they don't delegate responsibility. They delegate uh, the task. So they'll be like, you do this, you do this, you do this, you do this, let me know when you're done. I'll give you the next work. Whereas really you you should be delegating responsibility and then letting that person figure it out. Um, So that's just about trust and letting go. Um, and I I don't really know what other myths there are. Um, I would probably say, yeah, I mean, remote teams can be just as effective as like in-person teams. Um, and so I think maybe sometimes people think with remote work, you're going to hire someone who's like, trying to backpack while work for you. And there are definitely people out there. Um, but there's also people who want to work remote, but they just want to stay at home with their family. Um, and obviously, especially during COVID, but even, even before that, someone I hired to become my COO at human proof designs, he had a very good full-time job, but he just wanted to switch to remote because he's got like an army of children. I think at the time he had four, but he's got six now. Um, and he just wanted to be around at lunchtime to help his wife with taking care of the kids while she was preparing lunch. And so you can still get very talented people who want to work remote and who are efficient and, um, they'll, they'll sit in front of the laptop nine to five if they have to. And, um, and also you can, you can, yeah, you can just make it work. And
0: how many people did you manage at Human Proof Designs remotely? And how many people were on are on your team now at Onfolio?
1: Um, at our peak at uh, Human Proof Designs, we had 300 open wow. Upwork God. contracts. So a lot of them were writers. So they weren't exactly like full-time employees or anything, but 300 different contractors who were currently wow. doing a piece of work for us at, at that particular time which was i didn't manage them i managed like three people and those three people managed three right. people and they right. managed like 20 people and stuff um so i didn't like know know who a lot of them were um and currently uh, on folio we're a lot smaller we've got 16 people on, on payroll um, and again we still have writers and uh, uh contractors that do do piecemeal work for us but the, the kind of core team is is lean
0: Very, very cool. Well, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and for talking about the organizations and the cool projects that you've worked on uh, and for joining us early on a Saturday morning from Taiwan. Uh, I know it's about 9 a.m. there, 9 p.m. here on the East Coast in in the U.S. So really, really appreciate your time. Thank you so much, Dominic. Where can people reach out to you or look for, uh, or if they want to contact you to buy or grow their website, what's the best way to reach out to you?
1: Uh, if they want to reach out, then the contact form on folio website. So it's onfolio.co. Um, yeah, I mean, that, that'll find its way to me. Um, and if they just want to follow me, then Twitter or, again, the Onfolio blog is the best, very best cool. way to do that.
0: Awesome. Dominic, thank you very much. Cool. Yeah, thanks, thanks a lot for having me.